people of Galilee have been introduced to this man that we call Jesus. If you're reading through the book of Matthew, you've seen the stories, you've seen the miracles, you've heard the teachings. They've met Jesus. They, they know who he is. He is the, he's the miracle worker. He is Jesus the healer. He is Jesus the teacher. He is Jesus the one who feeds the crowds. And for quite a while now, the disciples as well have closely watched Jesus. They have they've been uh, by his side and seen how he shows compassion to those who are sick and needy. They've listened to him rebuke the religious scoffers, the skeptics, the Pharisees, the scribes. They spent hours with him, days and, and really years. By the time Jesus leaves earth, uh, they will have spent about three, three and a half years with him, listening and, and learning from him. They've absorbed the words that he says to them and that he says to the crowds. No doubt they've been discussing these things that they've seen and heard. Now Jesus has taken them away as we begin reading in, in, in chapter 16 and verse 13. We see that Jesus has taken them away from the crowds. He's taken to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of on the outskirts of what would be Jewish territory. And we've seen him doing this a little bit more frequently in the, in the, in the, the previous verses. He's taken them away kind of from the, the heat of the, the, the opposition, uh, away from the skepticism, away from the, the pharisaical challenges they have currently been facing. And as we begin reading, we see that Jesus asks them a very simple question. It's kind of a it's kind of a confusing question if you think about it because Jesus should know the answer already. They've been with him, so if they know it, he knows it. But if you look at verse 13, he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's a favorite title that Jesus has of himself, the Son of Man. It goes back to a passage in the book of Daniel, and it was used to refer to the Messiah. The Jews did not necessarily care for that term because it emphasized the human aspect rather than uh, the, the, the divine aspect. But Jesus certainly loved to use this term as we've seen him use it so many times before. And Jesus asks his disciples, what, what, are they, what have you been hearing about me? What are people saying? Who do they think I am? In verse 14, it says, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And we will remember that Herod, King Herod, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist when he heard about the things that Jesus was doing back in chapter 14. He said, this is, certainly this is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And it seems that he wasn't the only person to think that as the disciples are, are, are discussing that. Well, we've heard that you were John the Baptist. Some people think that you're John, uh, which obviously couldn't be true because they've both been in the same place at the same time conversing with one another. Uh, they, maybe it was the way that the, the large crowds were attracted to Jesus. Both Jesus and John had that, uh, that attractive uh, characteristic about their ministry. In John's case, people were coming uh, from all around to go out into a wilderness to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. We've already seen many times when Jesus could attract a large crowd in a desert place, in a mountain Side In a small house, people would cram in so that no one else could fit just to hear Jesus teach. Still, there were other people that said, no, Jesus isn't John. He's, he's Elijah. He's the Old Testament prophet Elijah. 
there's a, there's a prophecy in the book of Malachi. If you want to look at it, you can read it later. And it's in Malachi chapter 4, and cha- well, chapter 3 and chapter 4, and it prophesies that Elijah would come. And when Elijah comes, he will uh, precede the Messiah. He would be the forerunner, the messenger of the Messiah. And it's, and it's kind of ironic that they, these first two answers are actually confused with each other. Because when John the Baptist came, if you read it in, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist came, the, the people asked him, they said, are you the Christ? He said, no, I'm not the Christ. Uh, but he was the Elijah that is to come. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So some would say, well, Jesus, they think that you are John the Baptist. And others say, well, that, no, he's Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. But then there were others that said, well, they, they think you're, you're the prophet Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, another voice from Israel's past. Both Jesus and Jeremiah shared a deep concern for the nation of Israel. They, they preached similarly in, in, in judgment and, and condemnation on a people that had turned away from God. Like, uh, like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected by the relig- uh, religious leaders of the day. And then still there were others that just thought, we don't know exactly who he is, but he's definitely one of the prophets. He's not Jeremiah, he's not Elijah, he's not John. We don't know who he is, but he's definitely one of the prophets. But then Jesus takes that question a little bit further. He kind of turns it back towards the disciples. So if, you're, if you can picture it happening they are sitting around, and he's asking them, what are you saying? And these men are, are kind of talking about, well, you know, the other day I heard a guy say that you were the, the, Messiah, or the, the, the Elijah. And, and, of course, we've heard other, other suggestions as he has healed and done miracles. They've said, well, could he be the son of David? Could he, could he not be? And, of course, there was so many different rumors swirling around about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But now Jesus turns towards them, and he asks them the question. After they've told him, what they've heard, he wants to know what they think. He says to them in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now when asked what the disciples thought about Jesus, of course it would be Peter that speaks up first. He's kind of been the one to, to step out in front of the rest. He's, he's kind of the one that speaks without... Uh, waiting for anybody else's opinions. Peter is speaking for the group here. Of course, it's his personal conviction, but I think he's representative of the, of the majority here. He responds with this famous confession, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're not the forerunner to the Christ. You're not the, the, the messenger of the Messiah. You're Messiah himself. You're the very Son of God, the Son of the living God. Just recently, we read about a, a woman, a Gentile woman, who made the same, a similar confession, you are the Son of David, the Son of God. In verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. No doubt Jesus is pleased with this confession of Peter's faith, and he blesses him for it. But notice what Jesus says there. This acknowledgement of Peter's, um, this acknowledgement of Peter 
concerning Jesus didn't come by his own will. It didn't come by his own wisdom. It didn't come by human reasoning, what Jesus calls flesh and blood. This is the result of a divine revelation from the Father in heaven. See, many people had heard the teaching of Jesus. A lot of people knew who Jesus was, and they believed in him. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. They did not recognize who he really is. As they've already testified, they saw the healings and the miracles and said, oh, he must be Elijah. Elijah did miracles. Others heard Jesus teaching and preaching and thought, well, this sounds a lot like Jeremiah or John the Baptist or some other prophet. But Peter knew the truth. Now, I don't think that Peter really understood what he was saying. I don't think he got the full weight of the the truth that he was uttering, but he, he was saying what was right, and I think he believed it. Not because he was smarter than the rest, not because he was somehow uh, uh, more more in tune with spiritual things than other people, but simply because God told it to him. God showed him the truth of who Jesus is. And the truth is, that's how any of us know Jesus. If you sit here this morning and you say, I know who Jesus is. If you know that for, true, uh, for, for, for real, you, the true answer of who Jesus is, is because God revealed it to you. We don't believe because we somehow put the facts together better than other people. Or we put them together differently than other people. You're not a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, you're not a Christian because you are more intellectual than all those atheists out there or those people of other religion. You're not more spiritually perceptive than the next guy. It's not in you. It's not in me why any of us believe. The only reason that any of us can look at Jesus or read about him in the Bible and come away from that knowing who he is and believing that he is God the Son of God, the Messiah, and we can confess like Peter did, you are the Christ, the Son of God. The only way that any of us can do that, truthfully, is because God shows us, because God told us. And this is so important as we we come, not just on any Sunday, but on Easter Sunday, but it it matters of any time that we, we think on this truth, because what we believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. It's literally a matter of life and death. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of death and hell, of, of, of heaven and hell. Believing in Jesus isn't good enough. You're coming to church this morning, and I'm assuming you believe in Jesus. But that's not good enough. There are a lot of people in Jesus' day that believed in Jesus. Everybody that met him believed in him can't deny that Jesus exists when he feeds you fish and bread. You can't deny that Jesus exists when he heals your family member. Believing in Jesus, though, is not good enough. Because the people that lived in his time believed in Jesus. They got it all wrong. There are a lot of people today, they'll tell you, I believe in Jesus. If you go and ask them, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I might even go to church every once in a while. I might pray. Why would I pray if I didn't believe in Jesus? But the problem is, though many people tell us that they believe in Jesus, 
Their life isn't any different because of it. Their life has never changed. And Matthew was writing to some people here who had witnessed miracles. None of us have witnessed a miracle like we've read about in the Bible. None of us have seen 5,000 people fed with just a few handful of fish and bread. None of us have seen Jesus walking on water. None of us have done it ourselves. None of us have witnessed these miracles. But these people did. They'd heard His teaching. They'd spent time in His presence. And if you would ask them, do you believe? They would say, yeah, I believe. I heard Him on the mountainside. It was great. It was fantastic. Or they would say, I believe in Jesus because... He, he, I was there when he fed the crowds. I was one of the 5,000. I was one of the 4,000. I believe in Jesus. Or they might say, I believe in Jesus because he healed my friend. My friend was sick. He couldn't walk or he, he couldn't see or something. And he healed my friend. I believe in Jesus. Don't, don't wonder if I believe in Jesus. I believe because he healed my friend. But the Jesus they believed in was not the real, authentic Jesus. They didn't recognize Him as Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believing in Jesus as a person, as a good person, as a really good person, or as a really good teacher, or simply a historical figure, it's not good enough. It doesn't change anything. There must be a realization that leads to a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. That only comes by revelation from God Himself. So this morning, I'll just ask you a simple question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Whom do you believe Jesus to be? I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus. I think you'd probably say, yeah. I'm asking, who do you believe Jesus is? Not what have you heard about Jesus. Not what have other people believed about Jesus. Not what you've heard other people tell you about Jesus. Who is God revealed to you about Jesus? Do you see Him as an important figure in history. Someone who set a great example that we could all take notes from. Someone who taught with great wisdom, showed us how to live and love each other. Or do you see Him as the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel, as the Word who not only was with God in the beginning, but is God from the beginning. The Word that was made flesh and lived among us, who displayed the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The one who is at the Father's side and reveals and makes known the God whom no one has ever seen. He who is the image of the invisible God. I wonder if that's the Jesus you believe in. Because that's the Jesus that Peter recognized when he confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then playing on Peter's words here, Jesus essentially tells him, Peter, because you know who I am, let me tell you who you are. He says in verse 18, I tell you, you're Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And based on Peter's confession of faith here, Jesus makes two important declarations, two very important statements. And if you know your Bible, and if you know what's, what, what, what these verses are about, you recognize that there's a lot of controversy surrounding these two little verses that Jesus speaks to Peter. And, and honestly, we're not going to try to get into that this morning. Tonight, if, you can, if you'll be here, we will be digging into it a little bit deeper. For our studies this morning, I just want to call your attention to what Jesus says that He's going to do because of what Peter said. He said in verse 18, I will build my church. And then in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. First of all, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And this may be one of the most debated and discussed Scriptures in all of the Bible. What is this meaning in English, we don't, we don't really catch the play. There's a play on words going on here. Uh, but in English, it doesn't really see that. Uh, but Jesus is uh, very specifically choosing the words that He uses. Uh, we know that, that the man Jesus is speaking to, is, is, His name is Simon. Jesus just said it a moment ago. He said, blessed are you, Simon. Now, we know him better as Peter. But his name is actually Simon. Simon, son of Jonah. That's what Bar-Jonah means. He's the son. Of, his dad's name was Jonah or John. And, and he is Simon, son of Jonah. But now Jesus is saying, Peter. Why is Jesus calling him Peter? Because he, well, he changed his name, of course. But in Bible times, names were given because of the meaning that they carried. The words meant something back then. And Simon's name change to Peter was no different here. Since Matthew is, Matthew is writing in the Greek language, uh, and, and it's helpful then to understand that the word for Peter in the Greek is the word Petros. You know what Petros means? He's rock. And he says, you are Peter, you are rock. And upon this rock, you know what that word in Greek is? Petra. It's the same word. It sounds a little different, and, it, and, and we could talk about that a little bit another time. But he's saying the exact same thing. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what is Jesus' church? Well, very simply put, it's his people. It's his organiz- it's, it's not his organization. It's not his institution. It wasn't a building that he was talking about here. I'm not going to construct some building. I'm not going to establish a, a 501c3 for uh, tax purposes, Peter, based on your confession. I'm going to build my people, my church. He is building a community, and he's gathering a community of people that today we call the church. The Apostle Paul tells us about the church in Ephesians 2. He describes it as the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Scripture tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. He bought it with his own blood. The church is his beloved bride whom he nourishes and cherishes as his own body. And because Jesus is building his church, he promises, he guarantees that the gates of hell or the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. Hades uh, is a frequently uh, another Greek word there. You didn't, you didn't realize you were going to get a, a little Greek lesson, and I don't like doing that, but sometimes I feel like it's important for us to understand what's going on. Hades is the, is the word for death. 
It's used, uh, it's used uh, very often for, uh, for death, or sometimes it's translated as hell. But he's saying here that the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, uh, will not stop the church, will not overcome, will not prevail against the church. It's probably very idiomatic of the power of death. What he's talking about there. The power of death will not overcome the church, Jesus was saying that nothing is going to overcome, nothing is going to overpower, nothing is going to swallow up my church. Why? Because I'm building it. Why? Because of the confession that Peter the rock made. Death will not defeat it. Hades will not extinguish Christ's church. Jesus is building His church and nothing will stop it. Secondly, Jesus declares that based on Peter's confession given by the Father, Jesus is going to give him the keys to the kingdom. Changes the, the analogy just a little bit. The image that's in our minds slightly as he, cha- as he, as he continues on his, his uh, statements here. Keys symbolize authority, right? you got a big old ring of keys on your belt. You have, you have uh, access to a lot of doors. And you must be a very important person. If you don't have a key, you ain't getting in. And uh, you, you, if you have a key, you've got, the, you've got the, the, the power. You've got the authority to say who goes in and who stays out. And that's what he's giving to Peter here. This explains the sense in which Christ is going to build his church. How is Christ going to give, build his church? He's going to give the keys to Peter. And ultimately and eventually to the whole church. The keys, the power to, per, to permit or prohibit entrance into the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. It's the authority that Peter is given to call people, to invite them into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is not his. But he has now been given the authority to call people into it. Have you ever, I've been thinking about it this week, have you ever um, invited someone to do something, maybe to come over to your house, or to come somewhere with you, and then they invite someone else to come along without telling you first? You know that way that you feel like, um, what gave you the authority to do that? I didn't want them. If I wanted them, I would have called them. What authority would Peter have to call people to, to a kingdom that wasn't his unless he was first given the authority to do so? And in chapter 18, as we'll see, the, the, the apostles, the church itself, is given that authority, which, is, which enables us the only reason that someone like me can stand up and tell you what you have to do to go to heaven. Why you can go to heaven, why you can't go to heaven, I don't make the rules, but we have been given the keys to the kingdom. We have been given the authority to preach the gospel that is not our own, but is Christ's and, and tells us of the kingdom. It tells us of heaven. And it was by this same authority that Peter stood up, as I read this at the beginning of our service in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and preached, and over 3,000 people entered the kingdom that day. They repented. They believed in Christ. Now, by contrast, the Pharisees and the scribes, who were probably Jesus' biggest enemies at the time, in chapter 13, Jesus says that they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, slamming the door of heaven of the kingdom in in people's faces. For they neither enter themselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus is saying that by their efforts, they're shutting the people out of the kingdom. But Peter and the other apostles and the whole church, as they continued in the apostles' doctrine, would have the authority to invite people in, to bring people in. He says whatever he binds or looses on earth, or more literally, what will have been bound, uh, will be or will have been bound in heaven. 
or will have been loosed in heaven. He's talking about here the right to govern his church. Next week, as we continue through Matthew, we'll, we'll continue to look, but from the aspect of the church, what Jesus has established in this, in this uh, proclamation that he's going to build his church. The first time Jesus uses that word in this, in this, uh, in this gospel here, and, and he has a lot of instruction uh, concerning it. But he's giving Peter and the apostles the right to govern the church under Christ's authority and to exercise discipline and to determine what is right and wrong within the kingdom life. There's a lot of teaching, as I said, in these two verses, and and I couldn't possibly try to address it all. In fact, I started to, and I realized it was taking too long, and so I had to to cut it out because I I didn't think we we could stay until three. So this morning, I just want to point out what Jesus is saying he's going to do. Because it started with a question. Who do you say that I am? It led to a confession. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Based on that, because God had revealed these things to Peter and to these others, Jesus would use them to build and gather His people into the kingdom. Kind of a climactic moment if you you pay attention to it. But then all of a sudden, verse 20, he puts the kibosh on it real fast. He says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. If you think about that for a moment, Peter has just made the most profound statement that anybody could ever make. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed because God has revealed this to you. And I can imagine there's some excitement building in his voice. And Peter's thinking, I just, you, know, you know that feeling that you get when you're in school and you made the right answer? And you're not that kid that ever makes right answers. And then you made the right answer. And the teacher's like, good job. And you're sitting there like, yes. I'm going to go tell everybody that I got the answer right. And Jesus says to him, don't tell anybody this. Why would Jesus not want them to say anything? Jesus, you're the Christ. You're blessed, Simon, because you know these things. But don't tell anybody. Not just yet. Why would Jesus not want them to do this? Why wouldn't he loose them on the whole world to go and tell everybody the news that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I think it's because it wasn't time yet. But I also think, a little bit more specifically, because it wasn't quite understood yet. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit this morning. Peter made a statement that I don't think he quite grasped. Peter made accurate words come out of his mouth, and it was not because he had figured it out because he hadn't figured it out. If you read just a little bit further down, you realize he had really not much idea what he was talking about. The only reason he could say this is because God told it to him. The Father had a plan and Jesus was sticking to it. He wanted his disciples to follow it as well. The people, as we've been learning, had a very different view of the Messiah. If you're not very familiar with the Bible or with, or with the stories of Jesus, just read ahead a little bit of these verses and find out that Jesus starts talking about dying. And Peter, the same one who said, you're the Christ, said, no, you can't do that. When Jesus says, Peter, you're a rock, in just a few verses, he'll say, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter didn't understand. And he wasn't the only one. I don't think many people understood the full weight of Jesus is the Christ. At this point, there was more that even the disciples needed to understand about the Messiah that they confessed. 
But before they could proclaim him to the whole world, they had to get a few more things, pieces of the puzzle. By the time they were sent out by Jesus to go into all the world, at the end of Matthew, they wouldn't be proclaiming a Jesus who was the healer and the teacher and the feeder. They proclaimed Jesus as the one who was crucified. And not just the one who was crucified, but the one who was risen from the dead. They needed to get this whole picture. More importantly, just like with Peter, they needed the Father's revelation. The people needed to understand that Messiah wasn't going to conform to their demands and their expectations. A lot of the disappointment that happened at Calvary was because Jesus didn't turn out to be the king that they hoped he would be. Jesus didn't come to conform to men's demands or human expectations. He came to do the Father's will. It was the Father's will that he would lay his life down willingly. He would suffer at the hands of evil men. He would die on a cross. That wouldn't be the end. Because on Sunday morning, the tomb was found empty. A stone was rolled away. And news spread like wildfire. Jesus is alive. For many days after that, Jesus appeared with various sizes of groups of people, proving himself to be alive. And now, they truly had good news to share. Not just that Jesus can heal your broken leg. Not just that Jesus can fill your empty stomach. Not just that Jesus can entertain you with miracles, or He can teach you and make you smarter with lots of good information. That Jesus died. Jesus lives. That's the good news. But they needed the whole gospel. What is the gospel? Paul writes to us in Corinthians that the gospel is this. He says, I, I, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. In his own message, Peter said in Acts 2, this Jesus God raised up, and of that, We are all witnesses. Paul says, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. That's the good news. That's the significance of Easter. That's the significance of the Gospel. That's the reason that we have church is because Jesus is alive. The Gospel of Jesus is that He died for sinners. He paid the debt of sin. And satisfied the wrath of God for every sinner who will believe on Him. God raised Jesus to life. And today, He sits at the right hand with the Father. The Gospel is all about Jesus. Who He is. What He did. A man named Ben Meyer wrote, It was Jesus' purpose to set before Israel symbol-charged acts and words implying a persistent question, who do you say that I am? 
It was as if everything that Jesus was doing throughout his whole ministry was asking that question. Every action that he did, every miracle he performed, every word he taught was asking that one question. Who do you say that I am? And so I present the question to you today. Who do you say Jesus is? The Puritan writer named Matthew Henry wrote back several hundred years ago, it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not right ones. A high opinion of him and yet not high enough. I don't doubt that you believe in Jesus. I hope that you've seen from the Scriptures that that's not the most important question. Is the Jesus that you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Is He the perfect sacrifice for sins? Is He the risen Christ? Is He the living Lord? Is He worthy to demand of you as He will in the next few verses that you take up your own cross that you lay down your own life and follow Him. Is that the Jesus you believe in? It's not simply enough to believe that He existed, that He once lived and then died. Not even enough to mentally accept the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that He said a lot of wise things, that He helped a lot of people, there must be more in your belief. There must be more to your confession. It must come from the Father Himself. I would just ask you this morning. And it's not a light question to, to just try to answer and, 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 and say, well, I, I, know the, I know the appropriate response to the question. Really think about it. Even if you say, I've been walking with Christ for many, many years now. I've known this. I believe these things. Who do you believe He is? Because what you believe about Jesus changes absolutely everything. If He's just a teacher, then you'll listen as long as He has something interesting to say. If He's just a miracle worker, then you might ask Him to help you when your family member is sick or when you need a better job. If He's the Lord, you really understand what that means? And your life is not your own. And you're bought with a price. If he is God, that means I'm going to answer to him. And I'm going to stand before him one day and give an account of what I've done, what I've said, what I believe. So who do you say Jesus is?